Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman, and I'm delighted to share the conversation you're about to hear with Larry King. I've had about 3,000 breakfasts now with Larry over the last 10 years, but every time I hear him tell the Frank Sinatra story, it's like the first. The theme of our talk is mentorship. Not that many people in their 50s get to have an apprenticeship with an icon. I'm blessed to have had just that with Larry. Now, my style of interviewing was formed long before I showed up in Los Angeles about 10 years ago to help Larry write his autobiography, My Remarkable Journey. But I'd never worked with a microphone before I met him. And I've come to see how the time I've spent with him really prepared me for this podcast. So this episode is focused on the power of a mentor. Before we start, I wanted to give you a little background on two of his mentors who come up in this conversation. One is the announcer Arthur Godfrey, one of the most notable voices in radio during the 40s and television in the 50s. The other is Jackie Gleason, who many of you may remember as Ralph Cramden on the sitcom The Honeymooners. Many of my listeners are millennials, and some live all over the world, so I can't be sure if everybody has heard of Jackie and the Honeymooners. If you haven't, you might want to watch the show on YouTube. The 39 episodes were filmed in 1955 and 56, yet it remains a classic 60 years later. It was Jackie who introduced Larry to Frank Sinatra and helped Larry get his start. By the end of this podcast, you'll see why in some way I feel connected to Jackie through a chain of kindness that is faint but very real. And midway through the podcast, you'll hear me asking Larry for advice about doing commercials through a microphone. That's because I'm always looking for the best way to tell you about Squarespace, which provides the most beautiful way to create a website. Go to squarespace.com to find out how. And ZipRecruiter, which has reinvented the way to hire by creating algorithms that allow you to get the most qualified candidates with a single click on your computer in less than 24 hours. Discover how simple the process is at ZipRecruiter.com. I want to thank many of you for giving me feedback about the commercials and the show and sending along photos of where you listen to big questions. It's hard to explain how moved I am when these photos come in from all over the world. Maybe that's because they remind me of the dots I'd used to see on the map of the world on the CNN set of Larry King Live. Larry is still interviewing every day on his own show, Larry King Now, on his own internet network, Aura TV. That's O-R-A dot T-V. You can watch Larry there, 84 years old, and as unique as the day he started in broadcasting 61 years ago, here he is, Larry King. Larry King, 
Cal Fussman. <laughs> I came here to say thank you. Thank you for what, Cal? I come here 10 years ago. Humbly. Humbly. You remember. I walk into Nate and Al's. I didn't talk very much. I was a writer here to assist you on the writing of your Soup to Nuts autobiography. And 3,000 breakfasts later, you took me on your show, your CNN show, put me right on the sides of the camera, let me watch, took me on your comedy tour all over America, watched you tell stories for an hour and a half. And But now, what are you getting to, Fussman? This is what he always, along, Fussman. What are you getting to? This is what he always says. Cal, this better be going somewhere. Okay. Better be going somewhere. <laughs> Here's What's where the it's question? Going. Here's where it's been. It's it's a thank you. It's a thank you for putting this microphone in my hand. You be never thought you'd be a, a broadcaster of any kind. Never. You were a writer's writer. Exactly. What changed you? See, now now you're on my show. What changed you, Cal? <laughs> it was you. It was you. It, I, I'm thinking about coming here. I never would have thought about broadcasting. And just listening to you every day. Of course, I've been listening to the show for years. It's a mutual radio network going back that far to, what, late 70s. But this was every day listening to your voice over breakfast, listening to it on the show, and then seeing you tell stories. And I think it's almost as if by osmosis, it just well, I'm, I'm flattered. moved into me. I'm flattered that you would feel that way. That's, that's a rare story for a broadcaster. Most broadcasters want to be broadcasters when they're young. And most writers want to be writers. In fact, historically, writers are not good talkers because they think in a different vein. They think of the typewriter or the printed word, and talkers like to express talk. I wrote a column every day for the Miami Herald. I wrote a weekly column for USA Today, and I enjoyed it. It was fun, but it would, the weird part was it wouldn't appear till the next day or a day or two later, but I was so used to everything going out now. I was a broadcaster. I was a broadcaster doing writing. I never thought of myself as a writer. And most writers never think of themselves as broadcasters. So making that transition for you, because in inbred, you're a writer. And that's right. And that's where a lot of my questions are coming, because a after doing what, 12, 13 of these episodes? And I was just realizing I've had less time with the microphone than you probably had in your first week of broadcasting in, well, in Miami started, Beach. When I started, I did a three-hour disc jockey show from 9 to 12 in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I would do news and sports until 5 or 6. You know, I'd be in every half hour coming with news or sports. Yeah, I did a lot of broadcasting. I... I think I've done more hours on the radio than anybody because when I did five hours all night long and I did three-hour shows, I did an awful lot of talking, a lot of listening, more listening than talking, and uh, a lot of hours on television. So, I've done a lot of hours, <laughs> 61 years. Yeah, the, the experience you've amassed, and a lot of my questions are probably 
going to take you back to the early years because that's where I am right now. I'm, even though at the end of the first season, we put out the greatest hits. <laughs> it <Plus> was kind <laughs> of... <laughs> get to the point. Okay, here's the point. So you send me out to the Barbara Sinatra Children's Center. There's an event there every year, raise money, help kids that have been abused right. physically. And you were supposed to be out there, but you couldn't make it. And so I find myself on the stage. I'm interviewing Simone Biles, Olympic gymnastic champ. And I'm looking out at the crowd. There's 700 people. And I thought, I had this crazy thought. First of all, I was so comfortable. I couldn't believe it. And then I thought, thank you, Jackie Gleason. And I thought, thank you, Jackie Gleason, because I know that that was your connection to Frank Sinatra. And it made me think about mentorship because here was somebody who was older and on top of his game who lent you a helping hand when you started. Well, he didn't teach me anything about broadcasting, but he sure helped me because uh, he promoted me, did, he did promos for me on television. He came on my television show, which was an ABC affiliate, and he worked for CBS. And he was one of the biggest stars. The biggest. His television. He had, uh, when he went off the air, he had 30 million viewers. This is unheard of now. Oh, yeah, no one has. And he, to this day, people will hear, humana, 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 and know exactly it was Jackie Gleason or to well, the I moon, him, Alice. I met him when he moved to Miami to do his show. Jackie decided he wanted to live in South Florida. And he was such a big figure at CBS that he said, I'm, I'm moving with my whole troupe, with the Glee girls and Art Carney. We're all going down to Miami, and you're going to pay for it, he said to CBS. And not only that, I don't fly. You're going to take me down on a train. And the train was the Jackie Gleason Express, went from New York to Miami. And I flew up from Miami, a local broadcaster, doing radio and television shows in Miami, to go on that train down with Gleason. And it was a incredible. He took the whole train. It was like five cars. And there was press there and the Jackie Gleason girls and all the troupe and everybody was in the orchestra. And, and uh, instead of the whistle on the train, you know, the, what the... The, it would say, away we go. As it, <laughs> and with every stop, the train would make stops at various stations, and people had gathered, and he would get out on the platform and speak like he was running for office. So on that trip, I got to interview him and spend some time with him. And I could tell he, he liked my style. And then we get to Miami, and they have a big welcome Jackie dinner at the Doral Hotel on the beach, and I'm the MC at a dinner. So I got to stand up, do some comedy, do my jokes, introduce him, and that began a kind of friendship. So he would call into my radio show, come to my radio show, and then guests on my television show. And so he was so kind to me, as was Arthur Godfrey, and, and that helped propel me. 
So Gleason, and then when I switched from Channel 10 in Miami to Channel 4, which was a CBS affiliate, then he would, it went all out and did promos and did. So he was a major, major figure in my life for a number of years. But I'd love for you to tell the story of how Jackie got Frank Sinatra to you, because it's going to set up my next question. Okay. The year was, I think, 64. 64, I think. And Sinatra was the biggest star in the world. No one was bigger than Frank Sinatra. And for your younger people in the audience, you couldn't be bigger than Sinatra was in 64. Academy Award winner, actor, albums going through the roof, in-person appearances sold out every seat before he came to the city. It was unbelievable. And he didn't do interviews. It was not notable that he did not do interviews. So I was at Jackie Gleason's house. We were sitting around talking. There was a doctor there. And Jackie liked to deal into and questioning in the mind. So he said to the doctor, what in, what in your occupation is impossible? And the doctor said, they will never make blood in a laboratory. Your blood is your blood. You will not make blood out of water. That's impossible. Then he said to me, what's impossible in your profession? I said, well, I do, I do television once a week, but I do a, a radio show every night from 9 to 12 on a local station, a big station, but local. Frank Sinatra is at the Fontainebleau for two weeks. Frank Sinatra to do my radio show for three weeks. That would be impossible for three hours. Three hours, Sinatra. So somebody who's not returning calls the New York Times. Yeah. Who, who I, when I asked him, why don't you recall, turn the call from the New York Times, he said, why? <laughs> anyway, uh, so Gleason immediately said, what night is he dark? What night doesn't he work? I said, Monday. He says, you got him. He said, Tafantablu, you got him next Monday. I said, you kid, pal, as he always said, pal, pal, I tell you you got him, you got him. So I go back to the station that night, it was a Tuesday, and I said, uh, folks, next Monday night, for three hours, Frank Sinatra live in the studio with me. Well, the phone starts ringing, people asking questions. People at the station didn't believe it, you sure you got him? Now, on Friday, the station manager calls me, and he says, listen, we're taking a big ad in Sunday's Miami Herald, full page. They're nervous. Yeah, Jackie Gleason's on. So we've called the Fontainebleau just to double-check, and he has not returned any of our calls. Are you sure he's going to be here Monday? We're buying a big ad. I said, well, I'll call Jackie. So I called Jackie. And he gets on. Yeah, what? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, you know, about Monday, what Monday? What'd you say? He said, what, what Monday? I said, you said, did I tell you he'd be on? He'd be on, pal. Are you questioning? <laughs> okay, so I said to the station, he said, he'll be here. So they ran the ad. Now it's Monday, and everybody who worked at that station stayed there. They, the secretaries didn't go home. The salesmen didn't go home. They worked nine to five, but they all stayed. A lot of people worked at that station. So it must have been like 80 people in the lobby downstairs. You walked upstairs to go to the studio, and it's like five to nine, four minutes to nine, three minutes to no, nine. Sinatra. And a limo pulls up, and Sinatra gets up. 
and and he comes up to the stairs and everybody's hushed and he says who's larry king so i sheepishly said me <laughs> and he said okay let's go so we walk in and we go into the studio and we sit down and now the clock hits nine and the announcer says, welcome to the Larry King Show. Here's Larry. And I said, my guest is Frank Sinatra. Why are you here? <laughs> now, now uh, what I did then was I went to my gut. Obviously, I had never met him. I didn't know him. I've got him for three hours. Why is he here? Why, why this show? Why me? And he said, uh, great guess. He said, well... Uh, well, that was a great question because you're basically saying... Taking the audience into the... They're thinking the same thing. Right. So, but a phony would have been, well, my great friend Frank Sinatra, someone I admire very much, famous singer. You know, Come on. Why are you here? And he said, uh, a couple of years ago, I was working at Ben Maxick's Town and Country Club in New York. It was closing night. We had a packed audience and I had laryngitis. There was no way I could make it up. Ben was a friend of mine. I called up Jackie Gleason. I said, Jackie, I can hardly speak. Would you do? Would you do the show for me? Would you come over to do the show? And Jackie went up. He did stand up. He kidded around, worked with the audience, did an hour. I walked Jackie out to his limo. I leaned in and I said, Jackie, I owe you one. And two years later, I come to the Fontainebleau and I get a call from Jackie Gleason. And I call back and I said, uh, Jackie is Frank. And Jackie only said one thing. This is the one. <laughs> I owe you one. This is the one. And that was some favor to call. But I figured out why Jackie, why, why would Jackie do that? Because of his enormous ego about persona so he knew that i'd be telling you in the future this story oh you i never knew that i that thought he... i didn't think about it then but then as the more i think about it is jack frank owed him a favor it was nothing for jackie to ask the favor frank would do it because show business you do that but jackie could then also say hey frank sinatra did larry show then Jim Bishop wrote a column about it. Jackie had a column of which, look at what Jackie did for Larry King. Oh, that is a so definition a, of clout. Yeah. Something happened in that interview also. His PR guy came with him. And when we're walking into the studio to go on, a PR guy says, I don't know how the hell you got him. Because <laughs> he pays me not to do this. But he said, the one thing, don't not ask him about his son's kidnapping. He will walk off. He will not discuss that. Do not ask him about his son's kidnapping. Now, in the middle of this three hours, we're really cooking, talking about singing and Tommy Dorsey and phrasing and movies and acting. And great guest. And uh, so in the middle of it, I said to him, this thing between you and the press, is it overblown or have you been bum-wrapped? He said it might be overblown, but... I've been a little bum-wrapped, too. Take the kidnapping, he said. I thought the PR guy would faint. <laughs> oh, man. And he discussed the whole kidnapping story in a press call because I had him completely at ease. I never mentioned the word kidnapping. He brought it up.
And then later he did promos for my mutual show and I did the national mutual show. He did promos for me. Wonderful. I remember once where he said, Hi, this is Frank Sinatra. You're listening to the Larry King Show. Uh, listen, call me. You want some sandwiches? I'll bring over some <laughs> He was, uh, and then we became friendly and I would be at parties with him at Don Rickles' birthday and... Uh, do you think a lot? I spoke for the Barbara Sinatra Children's Center. What you did, when I spoke, Frank Sinatra was in the audience. Oh, And I interviewed man. a senator from Florida. And uh, that's when I, we were at the, uh, we, uh, this is a funny story. Marvin Davis, the f- big financier, oil man, lived in Palm Springs, had a home in Palm Springs, and Frank had a home in Palm Springs. So after I spoke that afternoon, we had a little cocktails at Frank's house and then went to Marvin Davis's house for dinner. Gregory Peck was there. It was a wonderful night. And I'm in Sinatra's house and he says, you want to go outside and have a smoke? We both smoked. I said, we have to go outside? He says, yeah, Barbara, Barbara won't let me smoke in the house. I said, you're Frank Sinatra. He says, yeah, I'm Frank Sinatra, but I can't smoke in the house. <laughs> anyway, this is a funny story. Marvin Davis is, is in the next... Marvin Davis is in this house. We're in the middle house. We get in a limo to go to the next house. We go out of one driveway into another driveway. And Sinatra says, you grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Hoboken. You ever think you'd take a limo from one house to another house in your life? Now we're at Marvin Davis's house. And the dinner is a buffet dinner. So there's like 14 people. Barbara Davis is one side of the table, Marvin's at the other. I'm sitting opposite Frank. I was there with my ex-wife, Sharon. She's at another, they mixed every couples up. Gregory Peck is there. And Barbara Davis rings a little bell, a little like dinner bell. Everyone get up and the dining, it's a buffet. So we all go up, wind up, take the food and go back to the table. So I was the first on the buffet table. I come back and Frank is still sitting. Everyone's online. And Frank says to me, where did everybody go? And I said, it's a buffet. And he said, a what?" <laughs> and Gregory Peck said to him, Frank, people do it. <laughs> but at that dinner, I told a joke in which he, he spit out his drink. You want to do it? I said, this is a polar bear joke. And he laughed immediately as soon as I said polar bear. Because polar bears shouldn't be in jokes. I said, this polar bear goes over to his mother and says, am I a polar bear? She said, of course you're a polar bear. We're all polar bears. Your cousins, your uncles, your fathers, we're all polar bears. He says, okay. Comes back the next day. I got to ask you again. Am I a polar bear? She says, look, stop bugging me. You're a polar bear. The third day comes back. Am I a polar bear? She says, why are you bugging me? And he says, because I'm freezing. <laughs> and Sinatra spit out his drink. It was, broke up the whole table. It was a, it's a funny joke. And uh, so we got to be friendly. And uh, one of my sad and yet beautiful moments was his funeral. I sat with uh, now my wife, Sean, and Victor Moan and Sorry. Nancy Reagan, we sat together and they put the casket instead of at the front of the church in the middle of the aisle. 
So everyone kind of surrounded the casket. It was a high mass, the cardinal spoke. And when you walked in, there was a piano player, Bill Evans, behind the front of the temple, playing all his songs on piano. And then when you walked out, they played, put your dreams away for another day and I will take their place in your heart. We all filed out. That was something. Paparazzi all across the street lined up. What was it like, that first interview, when you closed it? At You, you were going from nine to midnight. Midnight strikes, and the interview's done, and you're looking at each other. What happens then? He said, let's go have some drinks. And I didn't drink it. I was tired, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow out. This has just been too much for me emotionally. He said, okay. And then later he learned I didn't drink. I didn't drink because I had, at that dinner at Marvin Davis's much later, I had cranberry juice. And he looked at me and said, what is that red thing? <laughs> <laughs> but he actually invited you. Yeah, let's go have some drink. Oh, another thing. I forgot this. He says, you want to come see my show? So I said, sure. He says, you'll be my guest. How about Friday night, dinner show? He did two shows a night. Dinner show. Come in, you're my guest. So now I'm making about, I think I was making $100 a week at that time. I only had, I don't get paid till Monday. And I only had $20. So I put aside $15, tip the waiter, and $5 to get my car. And I'm broke, but I go to see Frank Sinatra. I also know that I have a list of girls I could call. <laughs> and the girl I say I'm going to take to Frank Sinatra, I'm going to score that night. <laughs> so I called this girl. She was flipped. And we go to see the show, and I got my $20, $5 for the car, 15 for the waiter. And we're sitting, and I'm having dessert. So, like, where are you sitting? The front of the ringside. Right in front of my, stage. Uh, right in front of stage. And I'm having my dessert. I'm eating Cherry's Jubilee, which is ice cream with cherries. And Sinatra, in the middle of his act, always spoke to the audience. He sat on a stool, and he'd tell little stories, kid people. And he said, oh, by the way, I don't do many interviews, but there's a young man here tonight. Jackie Gleason told me to do this show, asked me to do this show, and I did it, and it was wonderful. He's going to hear a lot about this kid. Larry King, take a bow. Well, I was shocked. I hit the side of the table. The cherries jubilee flew all over me. I had it on my face, <laughs> the cherries dripping down. <laughs> and it was a laugh. And later he would say to me, how's the cherries? He wrote, now I'm driving her home. And we're going to score. And on the way home, she says, uh, I got no coffee in the house. Will you stop at the White, White, whatever they call White it. White Castle? White Castle. Will you stop and get some coffee, take out to go home? I got no money. You're clean. I just yeah, seen Frank and five. Gone. <laughs> so I'm in the car with this girl. I know I'm going to score, but I don't have money for the coffee. I go into the White Castle, go to the bathroom, come back out to the car and say, they can't change a $100 bill. <laughs> she bought the coffee. Hey, you got to work your way out of things. 
But those are just little adventures in life, Fussman, I hope. I don't know how that story inspires you, but so you're going to ask it, a it question does. about that story. That's right, because that, I, I was listening so carefully, and that is exactly what I have to learn because it's almost feels like I'm two people when I do this. There's the cow that listens and asks questions, and then there's the cow that maybe in the intros tells stories and wants to blow the trumpets. You do that when you talk, you do that when you do your show. I used to tell stories on the radio after the guests left because I did five hours on the mutual network. The guests would stay three. Then I'd be on for two hours, take calls from all over the country and tell stories in between sometimes. I didn't always tell. But I'm a natural storyteller. I always was as a kid. I knew I could tell jokes well. I loved entertaining people. But I learned as a performer on the radio to be a listener. If I had a comedian, we had some fun going, but I was always short questions, listen to the answer, have a good follow-up. So you came- I didn't separate myself, Larry one and Larry two. I, I wasn't the Fussman factor. <laughs> I didn't have a manager like Cal Fussman. I didn't have a man who carries microphones around and sets it up for me. I've got Fussman as the Fussman factor. You got larger to be. You're a big man, Cal. It's okay. Absorb it. Take it all in. Well, here, here's my difficulty. And, and I just realized in this as we're talking, you went on the radio and you were the natural storyteller and you had to learn to listen. Yeah. But I, I always was curious. If you're very curious, you have to listen because you're asking questions all the time. I would ask the bus driver, why do you want to drive a bus? My friend, we'd go to Dodger games at Ebbets Field. At the end of the game, we'd stand around outside the clubhouse and hope to get, and all my friends wanted autographs. I never wanted an autograph, but I would ask questions. Why'd you bunt in the third inning? What happened there in the fifth inning? Why'd you take that pitcher out? And I had to listen, because I'd ask these simple questions running down the street with the player or the manager. So I was insatiably curious if you're insatiably curious you better be a listener and so these two sides of you were there it sounds like from the very beginning yeah, from the beginning i do, i always remember asking well i just want i wanted to be on a radio since i was five i don't know why when i was a kid i didn't want to be a fireman a cop a doctor i wanted to be on the radio now, i just wanted to, i would listen to radio shows and imitate the announcers now, here's something that I just ran into because I'm a writer that you confronted immediately as a broadcaster. As a writer, we were taught never to deal with the advertisers. The advertisers were on the yeah, different course. side of the paper. Whereas if you grow up as a broadcaster... You do your commercials. Yeah. On the radio. I didn't do them on television but I did them on the radio. Now, were you a natural at that just because you were yeah, listening? Yeah, I, I, I could deliver a lot. I could sell a product. You know, I knew how to pitch. And I did, I did funny commercials. I did, I did national commercials for Welch's grape juice and Florida orange juice. And What goes into you, giving you, a good pitch like that? Well, you, if it, some you ad lib and some are written. If the copy's good, you just sell it. But you're always selling yourself. What first one, what you're doing now is you're selling yourself. 
if the audience enjoys what they're hearing, you are selling yourself to them. And we sell ourselves every day. As Herbie Cohen, my friend who wrote You Can Negotiate Anything, says, you negotiate from the minute you open your eyes in the morning. You're negotiating the day. Did you perceive yourself as a salesman when no, you... No, I know Arthur Godfrey, who was one of the best commercial readers ever on radio, on his driver's license, it said occupation, he wrote salesman. Uh, that's what wow. he thought he was. He, said, he taught me that. You're always selling yourself. I'll tell you how good Godfrey was. I'm 11 years old, 12 years old. I'm homesick, bad cold. Brooklyn. I'm listening to Arthur Godfrey in the morning, who, by the way, accounted for 33% of CBS's income to television and radio. It's a shame that he's kind of forgotten. Great, great radio performer. And he's doing a commercial for Jiffy Peanut Butter. And he says, you know, I do this commercial every morning and I tell you about Jiffy Peanut Butter. So I'm going to do something different today. I got a jar here. I'm going to take a scoop and eat it. And he's put it in his mouth. Now, when you got peanut butter in your mouth, you go, this is so good. <laughs> oh, my God, it's so good. I got dressed, went down to the store, bought Jiffy peanut butter and brought it home. That was selling. And I, le I learned that from him, and I just, and I would kid around with commercials. We had a sponsor in Miami called The Famous Restaurant. It was a great, famous Jewish restaurant. And I would begin the commercial all the time with, how did they name it Famous when they just opened? <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of balls. <laughs> We're famous. Famous? I don't know you. And that, that's just ad lib. You're just yeah, having I, fun. I, I love to do that. And they, they like you joking yeah, well, around they with let Modern Age Furniture. They were a big furniture chain in Miami. I said, do you know the story of Modern Age? The guy's name is Sol Modern Age. <laughs> oh, no. Now, if you got a name like Modern Age, what other business would you be in <laughs> other than furniture? <laughs> so these... And then people go into the store, they'd like to meet Sol Modern Age. <laughs> well, I remember the time, oh, there was a, this was great. Sara Lee was the biggest seller of frozen foods. Oh, I remember the cakes, the little cakes. Cake, yeah, yeah, the pies and cakes. And then another brand came in, I forget the name of the brand, and they couldn't get into the supermarkets. It was a national brand, but they couldn't get into Miami's supermarkets. So they hired me. They're not in the supermarket. And they, they hired me, and they, this is the commercial I did. I forget the name, so let's say it was Tasty. Folks, go to your supermarket and demand tasty pies. Nothing's better than a tasty pie. And what we created was a demand so the manager of the supermarket would tell the supermarket, we've got to order these tasty pies. You had lines of... I pretended they were there, that there were no tasty... We, we created they were, out, they were out of the yeah. tasty pies. My most embarrassing commercial was for Prager Brothers Bread. Prager Brother was a famous bread company in Miami. And their symbol was Prager Brothers, the best in bread. That was their symbol. And they decided to break off this campaign to have me do a commercial on the three commercial channels, channels 4, 7, and 10, on their newscasts. 
So I would drive and go on Channel 4 at 10 after 6, drive to Channel 7, go on 6.30, and drive to Channel 10 and go on 6.45. You could make, you know, they were like two miles apart, and it would be a live commercial. So I get to Channel 4, and I'm set up there, and I got the loaf of bread, and I said, and, and I do the commercial, and I finish with, don't forget Prager Brothers for the breast in bed. <laughs> Oh, no. I get out to the car and and I, I said to the cameraman, did I say, yeah, you did. I go to Channel 7 and do the same thing. And at Channel 10, I don't say it, don't say it. I did it again. The breast in bed. This seems like the perfect spot to break for a commercial. The reason I was curious as to how Larry did his on the radio when he started is because this is the one place in the podcast I am determined to master. Still very new to me. Before I even started the podcast, I heard that many people skipped through the commercial breaks, just went straight to the content. That's something you couldn't do on radio back in the day. It fueled me to try and make people want to listen, if only to hear the commercials. People have reached out to me from as far off as Hong Kong to tell me how memorable some of the ZipRecruiter and Squarespace commercials have been to them. That made me feel good. But other listeners, well, they told me I'd taken a few of these commercials way over the top. So... I'm still trying to find the balance. Let me just make a couple of points about these commercials right now. One, I would never advertise a product I wouldn't use. If you go to calfussman.com, you'll see that my website was created on Squarespace. The photos shine, copy is clear, and because of that website, people have reached out to me to do speaking engagements. So I know it works. I also recently took out a new domain name on squarespace.com and typed in my own offer code, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and got 10% off. I don't know what better recommendation I can give Squarespace beyond telling you that I use it myself. But if I think of one, you'll hear it down the road. And let me also tell you about my other sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Now, My company is small right now, and I'm not at the point of making full-time hires just yet. But when I do, you can bet I'll go straight to ZipRecruiter. I certainly know how it works. All I got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and type in the job description. And with a single click on my computer, I'll have qualified candidates to choose from in less than 24 hours, all for free, because I'd get a free trial, and so would you. Here's the point. I know the folks at ZipRecruiter. The office is only a few minutes from my home. I spent time there. People who work there have come to breakfast at Nate Al's. We've even spent some time together at the Super Bowl. I know how committed and passionate these people are about finding you the best job candidates. So my recommendation comes from the heart because I'm very grateful to know them, 
and have them as my sponsor. That about sums it up. Now, back to Larry. Hey, listen, when you work as many years as I have, I mean, sitting here, Cal, with you, I, I'm 84 and a half years, 84, I'll be 85 in November. My father died when he was 46. I was nine and a half, and I always thought I would die at 46. He died at 46, I was a smoker, he was a smoker. I got past 46, I had a heart attack at 53, stopped smoking, but I always thought that I would die young. So I can't believe I am 84 years old. I can't, 84 years old. Herbie is also 84, and whenever we talk on the phone, we say the same thing. Why are we here? Why, how, how does this exist? I've had a heart attack, prostate cancer, early stage lung cancer. And I'm still here. I don't understand it. It must be that I love work. It must be that I have a high work ethic. I love doing what I do. I, don't, I can't explain it. I can't accept two things I've never had. I've never had a backache. Never had a backache. And never had a bad headache. Two things that most people, especially in past age 75, but I'm an octogenarian. An octogenarian. <laughs> when I was a kid, Cal, no one was 80. Didn't know anyone 80. In fact, when I was a kid, if you were in your 60s, you were, this guy's pretty old. Social Security, you got at 65 because you would live a year. Life expectancy was around 66. I was talking to a behavioral psychologist. Naturally, you're a first one. <laughs> I walk around, I talk to people like Broadway Bruce. You talk to behavioral psychologists. I've interviewed some behavioral psychologists. I don't just talk to them on the street, not like Fussman. Fussman walks down the street and talks to behavioral psychologists. Okay, and what did he say? This guy's telling me they did this experiment where they created a place that took everybody back to 1959. So you walked in, the magazines were 1959, the food was 1959, TV shows are 1959, coming out of a 1959 TV. And after a week or so of this, older people who had gone in with canes walked out without canes because they were... Living their youth. That's right. And I'm it's wondering, do you, do you live in your youth? Well, a lot of times I do, for example, a lot of modern things I don't, I don't accept. I don't have an iPhone. I have a flip phone. I miss the typewriter. I, like, I love typewriters. I miss the dial phone. I, I, I'm living in the past. I learn a lot of things because you have the iPhone, so you'll tell me what came in on the news. But I don't want to, I was addicted to smoking, and I know what that was like. And I stopped smoking the day of my heart attack. And I don't want to be addicted to anything. And everyone I know with an iPhone mostly are addicted to their iPhones. I have my friend Kurt. You go to dinner with him, it's like dining alone. He's on his iPhone. My wife is on her iPhone all night long. And I don't, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be captured by an instrument. I don't want to smoke. I don't want to be 
I, so so I, I live a lot in the past. I remember things. I forget where I ate yesterday, but I remember things from 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, you remember the Cherry's Jubilee. So I remember I remember lots of things from my past. I remember tons of things. Do you think that you learned more about the art of talking and broadcasting in, say, the first two or three years? Or was your learning cycle slow and steady? I never had a voice lesson. I just knew I wanted to be on the radio. It was magical to me to listen to the radio suspense and all those great shows, The Lone Ranger. I listened to everything. I listened to soap operas. I would go to radio shows when I was like 13 or 14 radio shows that had live audiences in New York. I would go watch the people read, drop the paper on the floor so it doesn't make a noise, reading scripts, doing plays. I was fascinated uh, by the whole thing. So I, n I never had a voice lesson. When I started, I thought I would be a sports announcer. Red Barber was one of my heroes. I, would want, I thought I'd be doing baseball games. But this restaurant, Pumpernick's, wanted someone to do a show in the morning, and they liked the way I did my radio show in the morning. By then I was on Morning Man. I was on from six to nine. This so is I'd, in Miami Beach, right? Yeah, I'd finish at nine and run over to Pumpernick's and do an hour interview show. And I never interviewed anyone until I started doing interviews. And Bobby Darren walked in one day, and I, I loved it. I was unprepared, but I loved it. I loved the moment. I loved the moment because I've been interviewing people since I was nine. And I just took what I do in life and took it on the air. Cal, the easiest thing, people say, boy, you got a hard job. You're doing five hours of radio, an hour of television live. You're writing a column every day. The easiest thing I do is being on the air. Easy, no problem at all, none, because I control it, it's an escape, and it's wonderful to meet people. They pay you to ask questions of interesting people and get paid for it, and there's nothing easier. I mean, living life every day where you don't control the day where other things can happen to you. I'm not, I don't have patience if, if the plane is late or traffic jams. But when I sit in the studio and that light goes on, man, it's a natural high. Now, I don't, I'm talking to you now, so I think about, I don't even think about it. I just go in. Most of the times driving to work, I don't know who the guest is. Does that make it like it was when Bobby Darren walks in the yeah, door? Yeah, it makes it like what now. Now I have producers and they do background. They give me cards and they tell me about the guests. But they don't give me questions. They just tell me a little about the guests. And then I get briefed. And then I don't know where it's going. I never know what the first, as I didn't know what's not to why you're here. I don't know what the first question is going to be. As, the, as I'm sitting with the guests, and announce the guest's name. I don't know what the first question is going to be. And where it comes from. This is like Mozart, you know, the music coming I, into I, his ears. I, I don't know where it's coming from. But I do know I'm totally relaxed. I know I'm funny. So I can put people at ease. And that's an ability. Like Sinatra, I have a letter here from Frank Sinatra in which he said, you make 
Then he did a television show with me, and he wrote me a nice letter, and he said, you make the camera disappear like there's no one there. And the like ultimate compliment. Like you're sitting it and having dinner. And it, you can draw people out that way. But I have, I have a style. I don't know you could teach it. But I have a style of curiosity. Like someone asked me, if you were interviewing Osama bin Laden, what would you ask him? Well, I would not ask him the first question, why did you blow up towers in New York and kill 3,000 people? I would not ask that because that puts you on a defense. I'm there to learn about him. And that would be the typical TV question now. Uh, my question would have been, uh, you grew up in one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia. You left that family to go live in caves in Afghanistan. Why? See, now, I, now, what I'm trying to do is understand him. You may hate him, but he doesn't think he's evil. He doesn't look in the mirror and say, I am a bad guy. So we had a, what drove him to this? So when you get to that question about the 3,000 people, you have some understanding you may not like it, you may disagree with it, you may hate him, but you know where he's coming from. It may be perverted, but where is he coming from? No one thinks he's evil. No one combs his hair in the morning and says, boy, I'm terrible. They don't. So you've got to get into them. So by the, by the time you get to those questions, you know the person. Edward Bennett Williams, the famous attorney who's a great friend of mine and kind of one of the brightest men, maybe the brightest man I ever knew. I asked him what the role of the criminal defense attorney is. And he says, to put one juror in your client's shoes. What a great definition. You, know, you have a mistrial, but if you put, if the, the juror can say, I would have done that, not guilty. That's his role. So you've really just explained the essence of your style. Was there a point where you felt compelled to pass it on? Because well, I talk to a lot of people, help a lot of people. I've young broadcasters in Miami that have gone on to do well, and sports broadcasters in Houston and Chicago, and spoken at schools. Sure, I like that. First of all. Let's put it this way, Fussman. This is a racket. I mean, this is a joke. Two people sitting here talking, and there's no one else here. Your, your manager's here. I don't have a manager. You have a manager. We're sitting here talking, and some people are listening. It's a joke. So, so think about it. If I got that kind of gift, if this is a, like a joke, what, what is there not to appreciate? What is there not to... Delvin, think about it. Does it amaze you that some people would say, how do you break the ice with somebody? I don't Could even think about it. I go back to Pumpernick's. First people I were interviewing were waiters or people in the audience who were there on vacation. And then Bobby Darren walked in. I couldn't prepare for him. I knew about, you know, his records and his singing. I liked him, but I, I didn't know he was going to come in. And then other people, Jimmy Hoffa came in and planned for Jimmy Hoffa. The Teamsters were in convention, and one of the Teamsters brought him in. Jimmy Hoffa, 
And now, I call. I learned fantastic things from him. What did you learn from the leader of the like teams? To drive a truck, he said. I never drove a truck. I was a loader. I loaded trucks early in the morning. And he said, then I, he taught me something. Then every negotiation I ever went into with companies that had truckers, the first thing I asked was to have heaters on the loading platform. Because oh. I was in Detroit. When you're at four in the morning and you're loading the truck for that day and it's 10 degrees outside, you better have heating platform. So when I would negotiate a deal, first thing, heating platforms. That's how I was a loader. So it comes his frame of reference. Of finding out what's important to the he person. He never rode in limos. He rode in straight back Chevys and he rode up front with the driver because when he went into a negotiation, he did not want to feel like they are, like the boss. He didn't want to lean back and have a cushy seat. A limo driver opening the door for him, he wanted to open his own door. He wanted to feel like a worker. Those are fascinating things. That's what makes a good labor leader. So we got uh, we got a little background. No, 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 is that picking it up? Who's there? Who's there? Cannon? I'm calling my son, folks. Cannon? <laughs> Cannon? Is that you? Sounds like him. Cannon? Folks, I have a 17-year-old son. He's quite a baseball player. And he's very responsive, as you can tell, because I'm a very forceful father. So you have taken me into a moment here at my palatial home in Beverly Hills, in which I'm calling my 17-year-old son, and you can hear how he responds. Listen. Cannon! Hey, Cannon! Well, let's try this one. Hitler's alive! Oh, no. Man, that ain't going to work. Um, never mind. So was there a point where you understood, because I know you've got communications you now, yeah, where you're, you're teaching people how I to communicate. people with skills, ask them about communicating. We're going to have you on a communications you, Fussman, now that you've become... <laughs> now that Fuss- i got a manager. <laughs> and the Fussman factor, I named everything for you, Fussman. Yeah, uh, and as we talk to people and communicate and help people, we're going to do something with Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I, I love... I love what I do. I love talking. I love speaking in person. I love audiences. Like you said, you felt comfortable there at the Barbara Sinatra Children's Center, 700 people. 700 people. Of course, because they're there. You're getting reaction, right? Yeah, at the end. And if you're nervous, all you got to do is say, I'm nervous. And then you're not nervous anymore. Then you're not nervous because you take them into your shoes. The one juror. The one juror, that's going to be the headline. Well, take the, just say, um, the biggest fear people have is public speaking. I'm scared. I'm happy to be, I wish I were out there with you watching someone else. So please understand. I'm going to do the best I can. This is very hard for me. So let me tell you what I want to talk about today. Bear with me. You got him. Then tell a funny story or something. Always begin with a little humor. Well, you know what? This leads to another great story. One of my favorites. 
where... I'm not going to tell a long story for this one. How long? Which story are you talking about? I'm, t I'm talking about the story where you are asked to speak in, in Miami. And the speaker before you basically puts the crowd to sleep. Oh, this was a... So it's not that long a story. No, no, it's not that long. It was a historic night. Uh, I was a Miami broadcaster. got very well known in Miami. There was a convention of the National District Attorneys Association. At the same time, the international chiefs of police were in convention. So there were separate conventions. It wasn't planned that way, but they were both in convention at the same time. And Dick Gerstein was the state's attorney for Miami. And he told me, so listen, I got a problem. Sunday night, both conventions end Sunday afternoon. And they've decided to have a combined dinner Sunday night of the international chiefs of police and the district attorneys. And my problem is Frank Sullivan is the chairman of the Florida Crime Commission. He's a nice guy. And he was scheduled to speak at our luncheon just for the Florida attorneys. I couldn't cancel him for the luncheon, so we've asked him to speak at the dinner. But he's the world's worst, most boring speaker. And I'm going to be embarrassed. So I said, what, what do you want from me? I said, I, he said, I want you to follow him. He'll, we, we've got this closing night. I've got chiefs of police, district attorneys. He'll speak about crime. You follow him. I said, but nobody knows me here. People in Miami know me. He said, I'll give you a big introduction, big. <laughs> so I'm sitting on a stage, and it's a packed house. It's the last night of these conventions. District attorneys, chiefs of police, some of them in uniform. And Frank Sullivan gets up to speak. And he was the worst. Crime is a, a, a crime is a, a, a fight crime. He's got graphs and charts. First person to go to sleep was Mrs. Sullivan. She went right into the baked Alaska on the stage, right? And I could tell the audience is squirming. And as soon as he says thank you, they start to get up. They're going to run for the elevators, right? And Dick Gerstein, my friend, gets up for my big introduction. He says, before you leave, my friend Larry King. Nobody knows me. Before you leave, my friend Larry King. Half the audience is standing up to go to the elevators. I run. This is all instinct. I run to the microphone. I said, hold it. <laughs> Stay where you are. I'm a broadcaster. I'm a broadcaster. And in broadcasting, we have an equal time amendment. We have a fairness code. Understand? We have just heard Frank Sullivan speak against crime. I am here to speak on behalf of crime. <laughs> well, I had them. They all sat down, silence over the room. Gerstein's looking up at me. Now I got to think of something to say. <laughs> I said, okay, ladies and gentlemen, anyone here in the room from Butte, Montana? Would anyone like to visit Butte, Montana? No hand went up. See? No one goes, wants to go to Butte, Montana, the lowest crime rate city in America. <laughs> They have no, no locks on doors in Butte, Montana. The police department's phone number is unlisted. Crime-free Butte, Montana. No one wants to go there. The top five crime cities in America are New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Miami. 
the top five tourist cities are New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Miami. Crime is a major tourist attraction. <laughs> you have crime in your community, they'll flock to us. You got to build extra runways at the airport. People flock there. Local hookers go to the local restaurants, local bookmakers. Another thing about crime. If you got crime in your city, you got the mafia, they take care of their own. <laughs> Someone does a bad thing, they wipe them out. And then, of course, the ultimate thing. If we listen to Frank Sullivan, if we follow everything he said about combating crime, if we wipe out crime in America, everyone in this room is out of work. <laughs> And the police chief of Louisville, Kentucky, jumped up and said, what can we do to help? <laughs> now, there are not many people that can do that. I mean, I, I cannot. Well, uh, that's, all, that's all, Cal, instinct. I, I, I can't explain it. I can't. Like, I tell a story whenever I, someone, I do a lot of speaking at a trophy room here with a lot of plaques and things. And I remember my first speech I ever gave in Miami was for the City of Miami Police Department. The City of Miami Police Department. And at the end of the speech, they gave me a certificate making me Honorary Chief of Police, City of Miami. I was thrilled. I put it in my glove compartment and forgot about it. Three days later, it's the end of the month, they made streets one way the other way. They would change the streets so the cops could get the complete ticket allotment in two days. Right? And then I always say, Cubans don't care, and the Jews moved to Boca Raton. <coughs> so anyway, I'm driving down the street, and I make a right-hand turn on Southeast 3rd Street, and it's one way the other way. And the cop is giving out tickets. I'm 11th on line for a legal right turn. And he gets to me, and he starts to write my ticket, and I remember my certificate. Honorary chief of police. I take the certificate out of the glove compartment. I don't be gauche or anything. I just put it down right where he's writing my ticket. He looks at me, looks at the ticket, looks at me, looks at the certificate, looks at me, looks at the certificate. And then he told me what to do with the certificate. And my first thought was, thank God they didn't give me a plaque. <laughs> so, see, so you can work misfortune I mean, I was nervous. I'm going to get a ticket into fun, into make it funny. So, so if I ever find myself in that kind of situation, look for a, a, a way out. Sometimes I control you. I'll give you an example. My last ticket was two years ago. I had my phone out, and I was on the phone driving in Miami, and a cop pulled me over. Can't be on the phone. And he pulls me over, and he comes up to the car, and he goes, Larry King, Larry King. <laughs> oh, my God. Can I take a picture with you? This is a cop. I said, sure. He says, oh, my God, Larry. It's a thrill to meet you. Wait till I tell my wife I met Larry King. I said, well, thank you very much. Well, I got to give you a ticket. <laughs> I got to give you a ticket. What? <laughs> no, 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 you were on the phone. I said, that's a $200 fine. He said, you can afford it. <laughs> Don't be on the phone. You're my fan. I know. You gave me a ticket. So, you know, one of the great things you've done at times, we've been in the same room, you're up speaking, and then you've called me up to speak when I, I had no idea you were going to do it. 
And it really forced me to try and be in, inventive. And I noticed I didn't have that je ne sais quoi that you pull out. <laughs> Fussman. Fussman. You're a Jew from New York. Je ne sais quoi. Okay. So what did you notice? Well, I, I noticed that it puts you in that position where you got to come up with something. Yeah. So would you advise, like, somebody... Take risks. Just just take every risks. Good, every great broadcaster, in fact, every great person, every person of success I have ever interviewed took risks. And they weren't afraid of failure. Failure goes with it. You will fail as a take risks. I was speaking to a woman's group in Los Angeles once, and all women, and Sean was there with me. I had to go to the bathroom. In the middle of my speech, I got to go to the bathroom. So I said, ladies, I got to go to the bathroom. Sean, will you come up and talk with the ladies a little while I go to the bathroom? I called and her up and went to the bathroom. I don't know what she talked about. Then you just came back and came you back picked it right up. Yeah. But she was talking to them, and I don't know what they... So in other words, I yes, it was it was difficult, but she can talk. Now she was very shy. I wouldn't have done. It. I would have done something else. But I would have said I have to go to the bathroom. Notice there's nothing wrong with being honest. Like my first day on the air, when I said it was my first day on the air, my first day on the air, I said I'm scared. And do you think, like when we're looking back on everything you just talked about and summing it up, that first question to Sinatra? Why are you here? It's, it seems like it's the honesty. Oh, yeah. That's the whole... That's at the root of this. Well, you can't go wrong. See, someone said, be honest, you never have to remember anything. But if you're on the air, someone said, I've had things asked to me a lot. Like, I've told a story about being honest on the air, and someone was interviewing me and said, okay, let's say, let's say you're walking in NBC, you're walking down the studio, you're visiting. Someone grabs you, sits you down, says, Tom Brokaw's sick, you're on. Hands me the news. Tom Brokaw's sick, you're on, the light goes on. What would you do? I said, uh, I would say, I was walking down the hall, and this guy <laughs> came up to me and said, Tom Brokaw's sick, I'm on. Now, I've never done a newscast, so I'll do the best I can. What are you going to do? Is it the end of the world? Is it, is it uh, emergency surgery? No. So it, it's another thing to also know that what you're doing is nice and it can be important and it can have meaning and it can move people, but it ain't the end of the world. You're not, I'm not a brain surgeon. Well, I just want to wrap it up with one thought that I had. I asked people, because I spoke with a, a CEO of a company who was telling me, hey, if you're running a business, you got to know your audience. Who are your listeners? And I, I don't know who my listeners are. So I started asking the listeners, send me a, a photo of where you are when you listen to this podcast. And people started sending in photos from Korea, Stockholm, all over the world. And as soon as these photos started to come in, you know what I pictured? I pictured your studio with all the dots in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, Wow, these things are pouring in. And you had, they were like 20 million dots. 
out well, there. There's a half of them up there. That's, I think that's Africa. That's from my old set. It lights up. It's on the wall. Can just to wrap it up, do you have any sense of how big a connection you've made? Well, I'll tell you something. I never, ever thought about it. I mean, I was on all over the world live in I don't know how many countries, Beijing, Vietnam. I was on everywhere live. But I just still thought of it as Larry King in Miami doing his show. I projected it. I didn't didn't picture the audience. Didn't know where they were. Didn't picture. John Miller, the great baseball announcer, he used to picture. He said he did baseball game like he was doing the game to me. Like Larry is sitting on his porch listening and I'm describing the game. I don't think that. I don't think about Cal Fussman is watching or this guy is in, in there or he's over. I just do the show. I don't. I don't think about it. I'm just you, now. You get awakenings, you know. When I went to South Africa the first time on a speaking tour for a group of banks, I landed at the airport. I'm driving down the street. I get near the hotel and I'm walking and I go by a hut. A hut. The guy comes out of the hut and goes, "Larry King live." <laughs> I go, "Whoa!" <laughs> you know. In other words. Wow. I meet last week with some people from Saudi Arabia, and the guy says to me, do you know how big you are in Saudi Arabia? You're kidding. Do they know I'm Jewish? Yeah, we know you're Jewish. <laughs> you know how So in other words, it hits you at times when you meet people. I'm at the hotel with the Saudi Arabians. I'm leaving, and guys come over from India. Calcutta, you're very big in Calcutta. <laughs> I said, where? Especially the south side, right? <laughs> in other words... <laughs> the truth, I pinch myself every day. And anybody in this business, Paul Newman once told me, any successful person in discussing his or her life who doesn't use the word luck is a liar. Luck has a lot to do with it. You need the ability. But Branch Rickey said luck is the residue of design. I always said, what if... I didn't walk down that street in New York and meet the guy who used to work at CBS who told me to go to Miami. Good place to break into radio. What if I didn't meet him? Where would my career have gone? I bumped into him on the street. Would I think of breaking into Miami? No. Why did I go to Miami? Why didn't I go to Buffalo? Why didn't I send what, what, what? So those little, that's luck. Now I took advantage of that luck and got in, but there was luck. And that's exactly how I like, feel. You're lucky you met me, Fussman, <laughs> that you appreciated the fact that you have a manager, that I get no cut of whatever you make. It's okay, Fussman, Fussman, it's all right. I'm happy for your success, good luck to you. God bless you, Fussman. Just remember when I call you, take the call. <laughs> Know what I mean, Fussman? Don't put me on hold. Just remember your friend Larry. Larry, I promise you will always be remembered and you will shine on in every word I say into a microphone. Shine on, shine on, harvest moon up in the sky. You never thought you'd hear this, folks. 
I ain't had no lovin' since January, February, June or July. Snow time ain't no time to stay. Outdoors and spoon, remember when people spooned? So shine on, shine on harvest moon for me and my gal. There's no way I'm ever going to top Can't that. Can't top that. <laughs> I think that's the last words of these, this interview. Husband, Thank you. Say hello to your manager. Okay. <laughs> That about wraps it up. I'm so glad I got a chance to have that conversation. My sense is it's going to get better with age. One thing Larry's taught me, it's always on to the next. We'll have Bill Nye, the science guy, coming up in future episodes, as well as Rachel Platten, singer of the hit Fight Song. That's gotten about 300 million views on YouTube. More! That's a lot of clicks from a lot of people. Thank you all for clicking into Big Questions. And please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher so you don't miss an episode. And remember to check out Squarespace. If you're looking for a new domain name or website, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get 10% off. And if you need to hire... Go straight to ZipRecruiter.com backslash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N. All you got to do is type in your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And that's on me, because you've got a free trial coming. Wherever in the world you are, please send me photos of where you listen to Big Questions. If I'm nearby, I'll know where you are, and I'll stop in to say hello. For now, it's goodbye until next week, with thank yous to Tim Ferriss for pushing me to do this podcast, to my nephew, Brennan Fussman, for creating the music, to Luz Fleming, the audio technician for putting the pieces together, and to Kevin the Manager for being Kevin the Manager. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. And cheers.